the 24th of June, and welcome to the Great Lakes Vegetable Producers Network, a live weekly roundtable discussion during the growing season for commercial vegetable producers in the Great Lakes and Midwest region. We broadcast live via Zoom at 12.30 Eastern Time and 11.30 Central Time every Wednesday from the first week of May to the first week of September. CCA credits are available for today's episode, so if you're a certified crop advisor, please enter your name and email in the chat box at some point, and uh, we will email you the QR code after, the, after we're done. I am one of your hosts today, Ben Phillips from Michigan State University Extension. My co-host today is Ben Whirling, also from MSU, uh, and our Zoom engineer is Mike Reinke from MSU. So, uh, West Ben, what are we doing today? Well, thank you, East Ben. Um, our guest today is um, Dr. Meg McGrath, and she'll be talking about how to avoid the powdery mildew blues. Um, Meg has worked with eucalyptus powdery mildew as a plant pathologist with Cornell University for many years, and on how to manage it from both manage it from both a conventional and organic angle. Um, she also maintains a catalog of disease resistance for common vegetable varieties um, that can be very useful. Um, if you have questions for Meg, uh, we'd ask you to use the Q&A box, and please make sure to upvote your favorite questions, and Meg will address those in the back half of the show. Um, we're really looking forward to having you today, Meg, um, and thank you for your time. Um, well, I wanted to um, just lead off with the but the first question, powdery mildew is a, a unique pathogen. What makes it a unique challenge in the pathogen world? Well, I start by saying it's a pleasure to be here, and I'm glad you picked one of my favorite diseases to work with. And I'm glad you said many years and not as many years as I've been working on this one. But I'll <laughs> admit, I started working on this shortly after I started at Cornell in 1988, and it was because growers were having trouble managing this disease. And Boy, it's a problem every year, um, and I've continued to have things that needed to be researched ever since. So it's been a long time working on this disease. So what makes it unique? Um, first, its ability to spread long distances every year. You can't avoid this pathogen. It's, if you're going to grow cucurbits, you're going to have to deal with it. It's going to show up. Um, small plantings, large plantings. I can have one squash plant in my home garden and I'll see powdery mildew. It's just ubiquitous. So cultural practices that we use with other diseases such as rotation aren't going to be useful for this disease. It's going to occur. Then the other thing that's particularly unique for all of the powdery mildews is that they do not need leaf wetness in order to infect. Um, so dry conditions, it's going to occur. Actually, a super rainy year, you might not see as much powdery mildew, but it's it, not needing that leaf wetness um, is definitely a very unique thing about powdery mildews. And then the other is it's just, it's about our most adept pathogen at developing fungicide resistance. And that has been a major focus of, of my work. And, and every year there's something new to be found out about resistance. Um, so I, I think those are some of the major reasons why it's such a unique challenge. I wanted to follow up on that. <clears throat> Meg, what makes powdery mildew so adept at developing fungicide resistance so quickly to the point where sometimes it seems like you get a new active ingredient and then not far down the road, you have a population here and there that doesn't seem to work on very good anymore. 
Well, there's a couple things, and they're considered to be general features of pathogens that, that make them um, prone to developing resistance. One is if they have many short disease cycles per season. And with powdery mildew, it's, it's about a week each cycle. So from production of spore infection to more spores being produced is about a week. Um, next is widespread dispersal. Uh, which I just talked about with this with this pathogen being part of the challenge to managing it. So that means we've got successive selection events occurring all over the place. So you can get selection in the south and then the, the pathogens moving up the coast and you're going to have additional selection, more selection as it keeps moving up with, with production during the season. Hmm. Prolific spore production, all of that white powdery stuff we see on infected leaves are all asexually produced spores. So a lot of opportunity for selection and then production of a resistant strain of the pathogen um, going on. And then I think this pathogen just has an innate ability to keep mutating and developing new strains. The other feature that's mentioned as being kind of what will set a pathogen up to being more prone to developing resistance is routine occurrence of the sexual stage. You know, so sexual reproduction for recombination. Um, we don't think the sexual stage is that important with cucurbits. We don't see it that often. The ability of the pathogen to survive in the soil as its sexual stage, because it, that, that's that's what's happening. The, the the sexual spores that are produced then stay on debris in the soil. We don't think it's that important with cucurbits, uh, but possible that that's another part of, of resistance development. Hmm. So it sounds a little bit like they're the aphids of the disease world. Uh, they, they have a quick turnover time. They can disperse a long distance uh, on the wind in the case of aphids, similar to spores. Uh, they, they have a long period of asexual reproduction as well, where they just clone themselves. So if you've got a resistant one, well, you've got a lot more real soon after. That's interesting. I never heard that comparison before. I guess I need to keep get my head out of the pathology world, eh? Yeah, well, you might get some dumb questions from Ben and I because we're both entomologists. So we love talking to pathologists, but we try to we try to rein in how dumb we sound sometimes. <laughs> um, uh, so I was wondering. So we talked about resistance. We're going to hear that word a couple of times in our conversation, but in a different way. So resistance to a fungicide uh, by the pathogen is, is what we just talked about. But, that's a bad um, thing. That's a bad thing, right. So we also have um, some varieties of vine crops that are resistant to the pathogen or maybe tolerant. Maybe, can you describe what that means and, and what's out there in terms of varietal resistance or tolerance to this pathogen? There's a range. The best resistance is in cucumber. Um, and the resistance in cucumber is so good that I think we tend to forget that cucumbers are susceptible. Uh, because you may and you see no symptoms at all. And then you go and grow an old variety like straight eight, and it's going to get clobbered with powdery mildew. A number of our uh, cucumbers that are grown in greenhouses, high tunnels of variety tend, tend to be uh, have susceptibility to powdery mildew. With the squashes and pumpkins, I don't see as, as good a level of resistance. Uh, in fact, some of my trials, I, I have not been able to document that they're actually 
have significantly less powdery mildew than a susceptible variety. Numerically, I'll, I'll usually see less severe, less severe powdery mildew, but not always statistically better. And then kind of in the middle is, is melons. Um, and with melons, it is what's referred to as a race-specific resistance. So it, it can be a very high level of resistance, but the pathogen can more easily overcome a race-specific resistance. So there are so multiple resistant. races of the pathogen, it sounds like, and so and so but described some... in melons. Oh, 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 only in melons. Interesting. So I, I have um, a, a, another follow up to this. Um, if there's one, if there's one type of vine crop that seems to get it worse than others routinely, it's uh, to, according to the growers in Eastern Michigan, <laughs> it's spaghetti squash. It's almost like the the barometer of when. The impending doom is really coming because it seems to get it first and sometimes they wonder um is that now go is that sourcing it out to the rest of my vine crops can i just should i just put spaghetti squash all by itself somewhere else and not with the rest of my vine crops I think there is so much inoculum out there so many of those asexual spores that the amount that's coming from a particular susceptible variety on your farm is probably not going to have a major impact I mean maybe if you've got a, rows side by side um it might have an impact but it, you know as i mentioned i i see it in my home garden and i mainly have one squash plant there's times during the summer i've tried to have a uh, cucurbits growing in the greenhouse for some research and spores will come in through the vents and and land on those plants so that just shows me there's so much inoculum out in the air that i i think that's not going to have um, a big impact to try to avoid it uh, you you could try separating them um planting them downwind having something tall like corn in between spaghetti squash and other cucurbits but i, I think the impact's going to be pretty minor so I, I guess i'll take this opportunity to share um with our audience that meg does maintain this uh, really interesting list of varieties. Uh, basically, it sounds from our conversations previously, Meg, you and a small team, maybe one other person or two other people, basically pour over all the catalogs for vegetable seed commercially, and you you try to pull out all the varieties that have some kind of listing of a resistance to a disease, and then you and disorder. A, There's also and, disorders in there. Oh yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, and then you you put it all into spreadsheets. And on on your your Veg MD website, there's a list of those Excel uh, spreadsheets by crop. And so something like winter squash would get its own uh, would get its own spreadsheet. And it's sort of arranged so that like down the left hand side, and each row is a variety name. And then going across the whole table, each column is a different disease. And you put marks in the cells for, you know, which diseases that these varieties are, are marketed for resistance to. And then there's, um, and also, as you said, disorders, um, which are non-pathogenic problems that sometimes happen, like sunburn and things like that. And it also has the companies that are offering those, those seeds. It's a really amazing uh, production. Um, and it sounds like uh, you have a new website, a new website through Cornell in which that's going to be moving to, um, and growers can find that there soon. But later, I'm going to share the link, and I can even share the link now in the chat of how they can find this, this, uh, these spreadsheets now. Um, and then I'll put in the link for the, the website that's going to as well. Great. Thanks for sharing. Um, so, Meg, I, um, I wanted to ask you, 
Um, what modes of action? Um, so if you're crafting a fungicide program and we want to include, you know, a few really good modes of action for powdery mildew, what modes of action would you definitely make sure to include? Well, I guess first and foremost is, is what we're looking at selecting is amongst the group of fungicides that are prone for resistance development. So we're looking at conventional fungicides. Um, ones for organic do not have the potential for resistance to develop like some of these targeted ones. Um, why? Are, I think another thing to be thinking about is, well, why are we recommending these fungicides that are prone to resistance? And it's because they're able to move to the underside of the leaf where the pathogen develops best. Um, so if you're going to effectively control powdery mildew, you need products that get to the underside of the leaf and, and really um, control that control powdery mildew. You can control powdery mildew on the top side of the leaf with a number of different products, but the leaf is going to, powdery mildew will develop on the other side, the leaf will yellow and die prematurely. So then what products are motive actions? Um, the other thing to realize is that what I'm going to recommend is going to change every year, probably, because um, hopefully we're going to see new new chemistry being registered, but also because the pathogen just keeps developing resistance to different ones. So right now, kind of top on the list, and I see you've pulled up the table that I have um, developed and I've got posted as a PDF um, on the website that lists the products, and they're more or less in the order that I recommend, and top on that list is Vivando. Um, that is a, uh, just the Code, code number just got changed to 50 for that um, particular product. I have not detected any decline in efficacy to that one. Uh, what I do every year, I have a couple approaches that I take to looking at um, impact, occurrence of fungicide resistance and impact on, on product efficacy. So I do, I collect isolates and I test them during the winter to see their sensitivity. I do a bioassay procedure and then we'll do um, a fungicide efficacy trial where these where test these products individually, which is not a labeled use, I want to point out. You need to be alternating. So Vivando has been working um, consistently very well for me for a couple of years. Next one to have in rotation would be a, a FRAC3 product, a DMI type of fungicide. And there are several to choose from, and they vary in their um, efficacy. So uh, some of them are, are not as inherently active as some of the other ones. Um, and it, these products also differ in how much active ingredient you're actually putting out when you're applying them. So kind of top on my list with those is, is Proline and Procure. And then further down on the list is Luna Experience. So if you're looking at the table, you will see that uh, Luna Experience has a FRAC code 3 ingredient and also a FRAC code 7 in, ingredient. And I guess I'll point out that this table for those growers to go take a, a look at it, it's got the, um, the rate per acre that I recommend. Some of these products have a, a range that they're uh, registered for use. It has the REI period, the PHI uh, time period for you, so hopefully that helps, as well as the labeled seasonal uh, limits. Uh, next kind of on the list of one to consider in your program would be a brand new product, Gatton, which is a U13. It's the only U13 on the market. Hmm. 
Um, the other table that I have also uh, goes over some of the restrictions that you've got on um, use. You've got the seasonal limits there as to number of sprays. Um, the, the, that footnote also has a lot of information about what you can use and can't use. Actually, I take it back. It is this table that's got those limitations. So one thing I'd point out for a small grower, if you've got limited acreage and so a container of a one container of Avondo is going to be plenty for the season, probably one of these other products, then you're really going to want to pay attention to how many applications you're allowed to use per season when you're thinking of a rotation. Um, so with Vivando, you can apply it three times per season. With the DMI fungicides, they range. So some of them, like proline, you could you could apply. I think that one is, um, yeah, proline and Luna Experience, you can only apply two times, whereas Procure, you can apply five times. So if you don't want to have leftover fungicide at the end of the season in your small acreage, then Procure would be a really good choice for you. Gatton, you can also apply five times. So that might help shape your, your program. Um, but alternating with as much different chemistry as you can is really important. And if you've got a really long spray season or you still have some Quintec and Torino left over from previous years, I'd fit them in the spray program kind of towards maybe the, the beginning um, before you've gotten too much more selection for resistance. So uh, you'd, uh, you mentioned Torino and, and uh, my understanding is that in the last three years or so, Torino's kind of dropped out of, of being as favorable as it had once been. Um, is that one example of 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 a, of, a, of a fungicide that's no longer effective or or less effective in certain areas? Yeah. The, uh, so there's an interesting comparison with the two that I've most recently seen resistance with, and that's Torino and Quintec. So when I picked up resistance to Torino that year, I also saw control failure in my research plots, and that was 2017. In 2015 was the first year I picked up and detected resistance in isolates that I collected and tested in the laboratory over winter, but Quintec worked fine that year, and it's continued to work fine, except the last few years, I'm starting to see a little bit of slippage. Still effective, but not as effective as Vivando, whereas for years, Quintec was as effective. I think the other really interesting lesson here is Torino had one of the most restrictive labels. You could only apply it twice. You couldn't apply it consecutively. Um, here where I am on Long Island, it wasn't getting used much because of those kind of restrictions. So although the company put a lot of restrictions on it to try to limit resistance development, it developed pretty quickly. So the other table that I have posted on the web lists um, when the product was registered, when resistance was first detected in the U.S., so you can kind of see the time frame for how quickly resistance developed, and also whether or not I recommend the product or I don't recommend the product now. And that's going to change every year. Um, so I, both of these tables are one. Every year I try to update, worth looking at the website to take a look at. I think the other thing to point out to uh, growers who are not here in the East, who are in, in the Midwest, you may be looking at a different uh, powdery mildew 
population than us. So it is possible that some of these products are, are working a little bit better for you than, than they are for us. Um, but if you're seeing some slippage in Torino out there, um, you're really only going to know from a, a university trial where we're testing products individually or someone's testing isolates in the laboratory or doing a bioassay in the field. To, to detect uh, a presence of resistance. Now that a grower is using multiple products, the chance you're going to see one product not working in your field is pretty slim. So very difficult to pick up resistance now. Uh, it's affecting control in a grower's field. The other products will fill in for it. So I've, I've got uh, another fungicide question for you while we're on the subject, um, and that is uh, about OMRI-approved materials or materials that an organic grower might be able to use. Um, what's what's your what's been your experience there? I, I see on your website you also have some uh, information on a, a really wide range of products that I had I had honestly no clue existed that this this diversity of them. I knew that some I knew of some, but you have a really comprehensive list here. Can you talk about it a bit? There are a lot of products out there now. Um, there is the the PDF file that's downloadable, which I see you're showing now, and there's also a list just directly at the web page it, it, itself. So you've got two ways to look at that list. Um, just a, t a terminology point to point out, uh, people often talk about these as being OMRI approved. OMRI is not actually approving these products. What they're doing is they're looking at them, reviewing their materials to ensure that they are NOP compliant. Um, so the, the the term to use is OMRI listed. And they're not the only uh, um, organization that is doing material review in the U.S., but they are by far the dominant uh, organization that's, that's doing this work, which is why most people ask for them. Every once in a while, you'll see a product that is, it, it, that is not, uh, has not gone through OMRI um, checking review uh, so that they're OMRI listed. Washington State is uh, another one that does it. Um, and sometimes your, your certifier will help make the decision that yes, the product does meet um, NOP compliance and, and you can use it. Amongst the products that are there, one of the best that I have seen is, is um, uh, sulfur materials. And actually, my lists, I tend to focus just on the biopesticides, so I don't actually put the sulfur products within that list. Um, uh, sulfur is a, a good one for um, conventional or organic production. There's lots of formulations out there. Where sulfur, why I think sulfur really shines is it's got a little bit of volatility. So after you've applied it, you'll get a little bit of movement to the underside of the leaf and it's a very inexpensive product. Um, but there's a lot of different mineral oils, uh, botanical oils, microbials. They're all going to give you some degree of control of powdery mildew where, the pro the, where you're depositing the product. They're all pretty much all protectant kind of materials. So when you say uh, when a product moves, um, when you spoke of sulfur just a moment ago, you had mentioned how it moves to the underside of the leaf through volatility. Um, that's not, is that the only, is that really what you're looking for? Or are you also looking for something that's like, um, I think I've heard people say translaminar or systemic. That's going to be a conventional product. Okay. Your mm -hmm. conventional products, a lot of them are translaminar. They're able to move through the leaf. Okay. Uh, they're able, these, these targeted fungicides are able to enter and move safely through the leaf because they have such targeted activity, they're not phytotoxic. So it's okay for them to enter the leaf. 
a lot of these other things, if sulfur gets inside of the leaf, copper gets inside of the leaf, it would be a very bad thing. Yeah. Huh. You'd see phytotoxicity. Yeah. Ben, I had a quick follow-up um, just because I've corresponded with Meg before and she's been very helpful. Um, if someone wanted to use sulfur, do you have any tips for how to do that in a way that's easy on your equipment and the plant? Well, first of all, I would use the dispersible types. I would not use a wettable powder. A dispersible type, you're not going to get the the powder where you, you know, you work with the powder, you're measuring it, you're going to see some movement of it into the air. Um, so you're more likely to inhale some, hopefully you got a respirator on, so that's not an issue. Um, powder, the sulfur is more, in the wettable powder form, formulations are more toxic to your equipment. Something like microthyl dispersed, microsulf. There's a lot of, of products now on the market that are, that are dispersible types. I think I've also heard that called micronized. Yes, micronized. That is okay. the other word. Yep. Okay. I've, I've had, I've, in my trials where I've compared sulfur to Bravo, I've seen it work as well and sometimes even a little bit better. So I look at it as an for a conventional grower as an alternative to using Bravo um, for organic grower, a good product to, to be considering and, and maybe using it in rotation with some other things, except for oils. You rotate sulfur too soon with an oil, the oil can bring sulfur into the leaf. Ooh, how many days? It probably depends on the weather, right? Yeah, two weeks is often recommended, but um, if you've had a good rain event, you're going to uh, remove fungicide from the leaves. Okay. Um, Meg, um, Ben mentioned, um, um, Ben was talking with you about resistant varieties, and you know, certainly in, in the jack-o'-lantern world, we have some nice resistance packages. How would, um, how is having a good resistant variety change what you do for your fungicide program? I actually don't feel it changes that much. I think maybe if you were growing all resistant varieties, you could stretch it a little bit, but I don't see um, a really good enough level of control with the resistant varieties. Your overall management of powdery mildew is going to be much better when you're using a resistant variety and fungicides. And there's the hope that you're reducing selection pressure for the pathogen to um, not overcome the resistance that's in those jack-o'-lanterns. But the varieties are, are very nice varieties. They're, they're well worth choosing all on, on their own merit, for sure. Um. That's okay, great. Um, I, I had one additional question, but it's kind of like going back to the beginning, really, about the pathogen itself. Um, does it overwinter in the, in the north, or is it strictly a blow-in kind of pest? It has the potential to overwinter. How important that is is a real wide-open question. So I have seen that the pathogen sexually reproduces in the fall. I've wondered if it is a temperature thing in nature. Um, and if you look at leaves after we've had a couple cold nights, you look at them really closely, you will see little tiny black balls in the powdery mildew structures. Um, and that is the result of sexual reproduction. So that structure will survive over winter and there's a totally different type of spore in there. Hmm. Um, with something like grapes, th those things are called, um, well, they used to be called uh, is still the more common term. I won't throw some new terms out for you guys. Um, but with grapes, those end up on the canes. And so in the spring, they're right there when the new leaves come out. 
with pumpkins, the leaves are, you know, they're breaking down pretty well. And then we're going to disc or plow the fields and the leaves are going to end up into the ground. And pretty much growers aren't growing pumpkins again in the same place unless they're growing you pick pumpkins and their their locations are, are very limited. I know some growers who continually grow you pick in the same spot because that spot works for customers. Um, I, I think they play a minor role, but but the potential's there, and the, and the big concern is is bigger chance that you've selected for resistance, and now that's survived over winter, um, and it's right there in your field for the next year. Okay. Well, well, Meg, I really wanted to thank you for um, our time, your time with us today. It went really fast because it was really interesting. Um, thanks for being with us. Oh, you're welcome. Well, it was fun. Really, good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I know Ben and I did, too. Um, East Ben, what's on tap for next week? All right. Yeah, next week we're going to have a conversation with Carl Rosen from the University of Minnesota. Uh, and the topic is boron. What is it good for? Um, so we'll be doing that here at the same place where you can go to glveg.net slash listen at the same time, 1230 Eastern Time, 1130 Central Time. Um, and you can uh, contact uh you can contact your extension agents that work with vegetables ahead of time. And if you want to funnel some questions our way ahead of time, uh, or you could email this whole podcast thing directly at great lakes, V E G W G at gmail.com. So this production is supported by the North central integrated pest management center. And this week's episode is supported by the dissipation station. We have some ad copy from Dissipation Station. Another spray later and deeper in death. Still haven't stopped that mildew yet. Is spray lost its excitement for you? We invite you to saddle up to every applicator's sidekick, the Dissipation Station. Turn your spray bar into an open bar that serves cold beer on demand. Install our refrigerated keg and tap system on your sprayer. We've got models from mini to mega size, from backpacks to booms. Our attachments have multiple modes of action covered, including whiskey, neat or with ice, rum and coke, and much more. Now, also get our spray day in the cabana attachments to upgrade to frozen drinks, too. Please calibrate responsibly. All right. Yeah, dissipation station. That looks like a hot, a hot item. That was great. Yeah, so look forward to that this season. Okay, we're going to move on to the live Q&A. So for those of you who are on Zoom, you've got uh, three options for participating live. You can submit a question to the Q&A box, and you can upvote questions there too. Uh, you can also use the chat box to add comments. Um, we like to keep that to comments and the Q&A to questions. Otherwise, it can, we can lose track of the questions if they're, they can get buried in the chat. Um, Finally, if you if you really want to be able to speak up uh, and talk to us, you can raise your hand. There should be a button to raise your hand, and then we can unmute you and we can speak together. And then uh, for anyone who's called in, we're going to wait to the very end to answer uh, call-in phone calls. Um, at the very end, you can push star nine. I'll let you know when. And then if you have had a question that has not come up yet, then you can ask it then. We'll unmute you once you've had your hand raised with star nine. Okay, so um, we'll go to the Q&A box here. We got a question. Um, 
it sounds like it might be from another pathologist uh, just by some of the words they use. So in the same year, do you typically see the same results with fungicides in the plate tests versus bioassays versus field efficacy trials? I do, and I do see some variation. Um, so one thing I see consistently from year to year is a high level of resistance to the FRAC code 1 and um, 11 fungicides. I actually have, and, and I will pick up resistance when I do the, uh, the bioassays. And a lot of this information is on the web and, and described um, there, and I'm continually trying to add more and more info, so, so, so hopefully that is helpful. I have picked up resistance, but not seen issues with efficacy. Um, one of the major ones has been Quintec. So when I'm collecting isolates and testing them, I'm collecting the isolates at the end of the season, and after a lot of selection, I test them in the laboratory. So for years, I was picking up resistance to Quintec, not seeing an impact on efficacy, and probably what it reflected is selection during the course of the growing season and using Quintec, um, and and therefore, you know, it's not having an impact on efficacy because there was probably so few resistant isolates at the start of the season, more as the season went on. Um, I Also, I think it's important for you all to realize is I do see variation location to location based upon what fungicides were used. So I've also turned to some grower fields where they didn't use any of these targeted fungicides. Sometimes I don't pick up as much resistance, sometimes I still pick up resistant isolates, which tells you that they're that they're plenty fit. Here they are in a situation where they don't have a selection advantage. Growers not using those fungicides. I still pick up resistant isolates. Um, so there's a lot of interesting stuff. The other really bad thing is I tend to find a high percentage of isolates that are resistant to multiple chemistries. So then I may pick up resistance to a product like I've picked up um, past year resistance to Torino. I wasn't using Torino. The growers who I was getting isolates from weren't using it, but I was still picking up resistance. But those isolates were resistant also to the SDHI fungicides, the FRAC code 7 ones. They were resistant to the Quintec. So it was those other products that were being used that were also selecting for that resistance. You know, In other words, pathogen has multiple resistance, resistance to several chemistries. You just have to use one of those chemistries and you're selecting that isolate. So that is what adds to a lot of challenge of management. Hmm. We had thought that an isolate to have resistance to multiple chemistries would not be as fit, but that does not seem to be the case. So um, we had an, another question. This one's from Ron Goldie from Michigan. He asks, will the sexual phase of powdery mildew survive in a place like Michigan or Minnesota winters um, uh, where we can get, um, especially Minnesota, can get pretty cold? And I'm not sure exactly how that compares to New York or I think Long Island where you're at. Can you speculate on the survivability in some other regions of the Midwest? That's a good question. You know, we haven't looked at it. Um, there's been that all that I'm aware of is is one study looking at survival of the sexual stage, and that's somebody who worked with me uh, many years ago, and we took leaf tissue and buried it in the soil, and she brought them out during the course of the winter to see how well the pathogen was surviving. It actually did not survive that well over time. Come spring, it was a low percentage of spores that were still viable. But, um, you know, selecting one season for 
a very resistant strain um, and then it's present the next year could could really mess things up. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's I think it's pretty unimportant. But if you've selected for one uh, for a super pathogen and it survives over winter on your farm, um, that's a bad thing. Yeah. Well, I guess keep an eye out for those. Um, consider uh, consider your rotations um, at the at the end of that year. I've seen what you're talking about um, here in in eastern Michigan, where yeah, you can tell the leaf is covered in powdery mildew, but it's got like a a second layer like over top of the powdery that almost looks like almost looks like soil splash a little bit um or like well you got to look at it carefully because also what you can get if you've got heavy powdery mildew you will get parasitic types that will come in and actually start consuming it so if you look at that photo gallery page uh, there's the distinction um you'll you'll see the different things you can see um some biocontrol well, it would be great if it was good biocontrol. There was a biocontrol product out many years ago, and it's just enough behind the powdery mildew mm. that it doesn't fully enough slow it down, unfortunately. I see. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. I'll, um... But the sexual stage is actually little tiny black balls, distinctive little black balls in there, brown to black balls. Okay. Um, all right. Well, and I've got one last question. It didn't come through the chat, but uh, it's a question I have that's related to uh, the the conversation we had last week with a, a whole team of folks about predicting pest pressure with weather models. Um, and Dan Eagle and Cheryl Truman talked a little bit about uh, using some weather data for, for, uh, for predicting the favorability of certain diseases. And leaf wetness was a big component of that, or relative humidity in some cases. So with powdery mildew not needing leaf wetness, does that make it something that is much harder to try to to model i think it's actually very easy to predict and it is uh, plant physiology um so when the plant is stressed and the typical stress is fruit production so as the plant enters fruit production that's when you're going to start seeing your first symptoms so actually a really good way that you can control the severity of powdery mildew which no commercial growers right mind is going to want to do you pick up all those fruits and flowers and you take away that stress, and you will see less powdery mildew. <laughs> Not very good. Kids, kids are hard, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Something fun to do with your kids. Give them one plant, yeah. they can pick all the fruit and flowers off and see the impact. The other times I've seen powdery mildew is in a very stressed planting with a lot of weeds, plant stressed, seedling, powdery mildew come in. Um, and then every once in a while on seedlings that got held that were due to be transplanted and weather, you know, with the weather, they couldn't get right away in the field. The plants got super stressed and powdery mildew started. But once in the field and overcoming the stress of, tra you know, getting into the field, getting growing, uh, powdery mildew stopped developing until the fruit entered uh, reproductive stress. That's, that's really interesting that you said that. Um, ben and I had talked a little bit about that what we were going to talk about today beforehand and we were sharing powdery mildew stories and la last year was a year in which like every crop was delayed in getting in the ground um seeds or transplants everything was delayed uh in some rare circumstances people were on time and i got to visit some farms that had an interesting mixture of crops that got in more or less on time and then a whole bunch else that didn't so there's this huge like age gap between their vine crops, and they had some, um, they had some of these uh, pumpkins that were fruiting and flowering, and 
riddled with powdery mildew, and they had others that were um, much younger, but just starting to vine that just looked flawless. And they were so close to each other. It was just, it was really striking how that the stress of having fruit and flowers made those plants susceptible compared to the younger ones, which didn't have that stress yet, right next to each other. It's really very, bizarre. Very interesting. And yeah, I've, I've seen that as well. It's very interesting. I got a follow-up for you guys, Meg. Um, so in terms of when to initiate your program, um, you can talk about first detection. Um, in some cases, it seems to be maybe a calendar type thing. Um, we expect at this time of year, so we want to get ahead of it. But then you mentioned plant stage. What's, what's the best way to determine of those three when to start your program? I'd, I'd, I'd go on fruit production. So I'd keep an eye out when the fruits first start forming, huh. start scouting. Um, if you've got the time to be out there and, and looking, and it doesn't take all that long to do a, some quick scouting, look at, make sure you're looking at the underside of the leaves and, and old to mid-aged leaves, not young leaves for powdery mildew. Uh, and the threshold I've worked with is, is one leaf with symptoms out of 50 older leaves looked at. So you can do a quick start walking through the field and you know look at a couple leaves, you spot powdery mildew, back out and, and know it's time to start spraying. Um, but but look at a good 50 leaves before you make the decision that, no, it's not here yet. Okay, fantastic. Um, well, Meg, I really appreciate you taking the time today to talk to a couple of knucklehead entomologists. Um, you really are a, a wealth of information on this on this subject. This was great. Oh, good. It's an interesting pathogen. You know, on the other side of it, we're talking about how the plant's not susceptible until fruit production. In the laboratory, I work with it at the cotyledon stage. So there's something different about the physiology of the plant in, in, in that different growing environment of, of a growth chamber that it's susceptible from day one. The other thing to be aware of if you're growing your own transplants and you're growing ornamentals, in particular verbena, that's an alternate host. So if you have powdery mildew on verbena, and I've seen this happen to growers, the powdery mildew will go there to their cucurbit seedlings that they're growing in a greenhouse, which is an environment where the plant is susceptible from day one, something different about the environment, you can have powdery mildew get started. Wow. Once it gets in the field, it's gonna, it will turn off again once, once the plant gets established. But um, if you get a pretty good flush of powdery mildew early on, you've got a stressed plant hitting the field, that's no good. Hmm fascinating world isn't it like yeah, verbena, yeah. verbena and cucurbits are cousins no not really yeah, so that's why is it the same powdery milk same powdery mildew on them yeah huh. very interesting well um well once again uh appreciate your time and uh next week we'll be talking about boron i think ben whirling and our our colleague from minnesota natalie hoydahl are going to be the hosts next week and i think that's going to be a good a good show so um We'll, we'll see you next week, and, and thanks again. You have a good rest of the week, everybody. Yeah, thank you, everybody.